Welcome to the Beretta Brothers. We're a podcast and a vodcast. You can listen or watch the episode. Just go to theberettabrothers.com. That's B-A-R-R-E-T-T-A brothers.com. Please subscribe, rate us. And we'd love to hear your comments. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Beretta Brothers. I'm Gene Beretta, and today Bill is busy binge-watching Thousand Pound Sisters. On this episode, I'm joined by Dave Goals. Dave is an Emmy Award-winning puppeteer who has performed with the Muppets since the mid-70s. He's originated such characters as Uncle Traveling Matt, Zoo, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, and the iconic Gonzo. He's also a Muppet designer, Muppet builder, and is co-executive producing the new Fraggle Rock series. He's also won a special Oscar for his understated choreography in The Parent Trap. He's with me today because (laughs) he has some wonderful stories to tell. Unlike the long-form interviews we usually do on our show, these mini-episodes give our guests the chance to share one favorite memory about each of these very special people. Dave Coles, what can you tell me about Jerry Nelson? Jerry Nelson and I had a game that we played. Um, It started the first time I went to London with the Muppets, and it was for the Herb Alpert special. And we were rehearsing one day in rehearsal hall, and actually in the carpentry shop. We were rehearsing in the carpentry shop, and um, they were building a set, and Jerry went over behind this new set and pulled a little knot out of the uh, out of the framing for the set, and it was about a half inch in diameter, maybe an inch long. And he walked over and handed it to me, and I said, "What's this?" And he said, "It's a knotty problem." <laughs> and of course, I knew what the game was because the Muppet history is rife with stories about people passing objects back and forth over the years. Uh-huh. And the, the, the idea of the game is to not be stuck with the object. You want to come get it back to the other person as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So um, there was a legendary one with a cherry Danish that started with Jerry Jewell and Frank Oz. And uh, it went back and forth between them until it was moldy and then rotten. And it went on and on for years. And then so Jerry- You weren't even allowed to buy a new Danish. It had to be the exact same one. It had to be the same one. So this- decrepit, awful, putrefying Danish went back and forth. And then Jerry Jewell made a board game about the Danish. And he executed, you know, like a regular board game with all the graphics and everything. And I think Susan Jewell has that now. Anyway, so I was aware of this history and I knew that I did indeed have a naughty problem. Well, that went back and forth between us for 20 years. You You would hide it in somebody's lunch you would uh, put it in their, their hoodie. You would sneak it to them in one way or another. And um, it went back and forth and back and forth. And finally, I got it. And I thought, you know, I'm going to make a nice wooden case for it lined with red velvet. And so I made this beautiful case. And the naughty problem just sat in the, in the velvet. And um, I packaged it up and mailed it to him. And I never got it back. <laughs> he lived for, you know, several more years, like, five, eight years more years after that. But um, I never got it back. I think I made it too attractive for him. <laughs> right. Why? Why give it up? And I've asked, I've actually asked Jan, his his wife, if she's come across it and, and she hasn't seen it. So I don't know where it is. I'm curious though, if with a game like that, do you have to tell the person once you've discovered it or could you have to wait years and years until you just receive it again out of the blue? Well, generally... I think the etiquette probably is generally that you acknowledge that you've got it. Okay. You might say nice one, right? 
Because that's um, a whole part of the, the the whole pleasure of it is to know that they they got it and they saw it and it, they got the joke and everything, right? Yeah, yeah. Now they're stuck with it and they have to get it back to you. And you're on guard. You're, yeah. you're on high alert. <laughs> um, there, there are just so many of these stories like this. Uh, at one point, Steve Whitmire and I started one where he, we were doing a, an appearance at the Hollywood Bowl and Steve lost his voice. He had something... He had some something really wrong with his voice, and so he, he ended up having to have a uh, uh, a steroid shot from a doctor so that he could go on and perform at the Hollywood Bowl. However, uh, before that, I went across the street. He was staying in the day before the Hollywood Bowl in the hotel. I went across the street to a drugstore and I bought all these remedies, every, anything that could possibly help, and I sent it to him. And he was very grateful, and, and he said, how much was that? I'll pay you back. And I said, no, no, not, don't, don't pay me back. It wouldn't mean anything if I then. So <laughs> he, get, he slipped me $40, two 20s. And, of course, I slipped it back to him. And it went back and forth a few times. And, of course, now we've been to our homes. It's Months have gone by, and we're back in L.A. again. And, uh, and I thought... I know how to get it to him this time. So I rolled it around a, a really nice pen and I gave it to him um, for, for some kind of, it's like a present, you know? And so he, he could tell it was a pen or something. And so he opened it up. It was just wrapped in paper and he, and he had the $40 again. And so he cleverly slipped it to me before we left Los Angeles. Well, the day that we were leaving, he brought his suitcase in and I zipped it into one of the external pockets on his suitcase. It was unused. You know how suitcases have those zippers on the side, but you never right. put anything in there because it's just a flat place. Right. So I put the $40 in there and he never found it. And as far as I know, he still hasn't found it. And probably the suitcase is in a dump somewhere. Yeah, right. He may have th just thrown it away. Yeah, you know? but this is how these things go, you know. <laughs> Dave Goals, what can you tell me about Richard Hunt? Well, I'll tell you a story that I don't know whether you've heard this or not, but Richard Hunt always wore in the Muppet Show days one outfit. It was a pair of painter's pants, which are the kind of pants that have loops on the sides to hold, you know, rollers and things and lots of pockets. And they're white. And he always wore those. He wore, uh, I guess it was Converse sneakers. And then he wore a rugby shirt, a long sleeve rugby shirt in bold red and white or green and white stripes. I, I can picture that from photos I've seen. Yeah, that was Richard Hunt's daily outfit. So um, so one evening during the first season, there was a party at Gillian Lynn's house. She was our one of our choreographers on The Muppet Show. She later went on to become famous for choreographing Cats and a whole bunch of other stuff. Anyway, I showed up at the party and, you know, we all dressed up a little bit, but Richard was wearing a pair of Bally loafers and green cords and a rust colored shirt and a jacket that I can't quite recall. All of a sudden he looked completely different. And I realized that he had, I guess he had maybe just one outfit that he had purchased in London for occasions like this. And it was uh, it was really cool because he looked great. He looked absolutely amazing in it. Right. But you know, Monday morning back in the painter's pants and <laughs> one work outfit, one out to out on the night. I think that was it. And the rest of the time he was just having fun. <laughs> Dave Coles, what can you tell me about Carol Spinney? 
Carol Spinney was unbelievably nice to me. I, I met Frank Oz at a puppetry festival in 1972 in August. And about a month later, I had a business trip to the East Coast. So I took a week of vacation time and went to Sesame Street every day. Now, I started on a Monday, and Frank, who uh, had arranged it for me, wasn't coming in until Friday. Um, but I guess he let Carol know that I was coming, and Carol couldn't have been more nice. He welcomed me, and he was just a, you know, a sweetheart. And uh, Carol worked every day on Sesame Street, and Frank just worked on Fridays. So the very first day, Carol invited me to lunch, and we went across the street and had lunch. He, he, he bought my lunch. And, you know, I'm, he doesn't know me from Adam. He was just being, he was just a nice guy. So, and of course, I was just sitting there thinking, good Lord, I'm having lunch with the guy who does Big Bird. Right. It was just huge to me because Big Bird, even at that point, that was 1972, he was iconic already. And, um, and I just couldn't believe that the people who did these characters were so nice. So, uh, that was my story about Carol. Oh, and, and later in the week, I think it was, what would it have been? I don't know, sometime after Monday, I brought my puppets over. I had them in a cardboard box and I showed Carol my puppets. He said, you know, you make really good puppets. You should, you should go see Bonnie Erickson in the workshop. And um, he called her and, and I did go over one afternoon and saw Bonnie and, um, what she later told me, like in the last year, was that my puppets were of a professional quality, and so she could actually, um, she could actually imagine them being used. Most of the puppets that people bring in are not that good, she said. But anyway, she said Jim ought to meet you, but he's in France right now, so so we can't do it. Anyway, a month later, Jim called me at my desk at Hewlett Packard in Silicon Valley, and um, I flew down to L.A. to meet him when he was down there to shoot a Perry Como special. But that's just how fluky the whole career was, you know, and yeah, Carol, yeah. Was, Carol played a big part in it. He also played a big part in Steve Whitmire's career. You know, he mm -hmm. was in Atlanta and he saw Steve working and um, made sure that that uh, Steve met uh, Jane Hunt. And that's how they they established the contact between the, you know, Steve and the company. And that later led to him becoming an incredible performer. You know the way you're, you're mentioning how impressed you were with how humble and how uh, just approachable these veteran performers were. I'm sure that there are people saying the same thing about you after they've met you because it, it seems to just pass from one performer, Henson performer, to the next that way. They carry that spirit through. It, it, somehow it does. I mean, all the people that we have working now, some of them, uh, some of the people we have working now didn't even meet Jim. They had never met him, let alone worked with him. Right. But they carry on the protectiveness of the characters and the ethos of um, inclusiveness and all of the philosophical things that, that were a part of Jim that led to the creation of the Muppets. And, and somehow little kids watch this, they absorb it, and then they grow up and they come work with us. Yeah, it's, it is a remarkable self-perpetuating thing. Right, right. Except for Bill Breda, that's that, he's kind of a rough one. Yeah, you know, you, you try to talk to him, you try to yeah, he, just, he won't talk. Influence, pass on <clears throat> some wonderful things. <clears throat> Sorry, and he's just too stone-headed. He won't listen to a thing, and so you know, no, the ego, to... the ego is just it just pushes everything out of the room. Right, right. He's big man in the room. Yeah. Can't oh, yeah. Anything. I'm Italian. I'm Italian. Yeah, I'm a, yeah, yeah. I'm going to put a contract out on you. Yeah, he thinks he's Frank Sinatra. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Billy is another one of those people who's just the right guy. Well, Dave, what can you tell me about Jane Henson? Jane Henson always flew economy. This was what blew my mind about her. Here she was, <clears throat> co-owner of the Muppets, and I would run into her everywhere I was in the world. Like, you know, wherever we went to shoot, Jane would stop by and say hello. She was like a roving ambassador for the company. And what I learned about it from, you know, people who, uh, like her assistant and so forth, was that she always flew economy. She did not want first class. She didn't want special treatment. And man, when you travel a lot, it's, it's just hard work to travel. You know, it's not mm -hmm. fun. It's crowded and there are lots of delays and you spend the whole day getting somewhere, uh, maybe the whole day and whole night getting somewhere. And, um, you know, any comfort that you can find on that plane is highly welcome, but she never did it. She just flew economy. So would she even fly, if Jim might be up in first class and she would sit separately if she was traveling together? Or I don't think I have that. I don't know. I don't know about that for sure, but... Um, there was a situation where I think Jane was flying up to Toronto with a bunch of Henson people who were working on Fraggle Rock. And one of them was in first class and Jane was in economy with the others. And the first class person went back and said, you, you take the, go ahead and take the seat. And she said, oh, no, 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 absolutely not. No, she wouldn't do it. That's cool. There's a humility about that and a groundedness that I really loved. Yeah, I like it too. Finally, Dave Goals, what can you tell me about Jim Henson? What can I tell you about Jim Henson that you don't already know? I, let's see, what's the Jim story? I have a couple of little Jim stories that I may have told them somewhere. I think I've told them somewhere else before, but um, one of them was, I, I, my girlfriend was a costume designer, and at one point in the early 80s, I needed a tuxedo. I thought, I might, I'm just going to need a tuxedo, so I'll get one made. She said, yeah, I know somebody who can make a great tuxedo for you. And so I had him make a tuxedo and a suit. And um, side sidebar on that, the fittings, normally he did uh, two, a measuring and two fittings and then delivered. Well, he came to the studio like three or four times. He said, I have never seen an anatomy like yours because all my whole right shoulder was just overdeveloped, right? Oh, right. Yes. All the muscles on my back. I was asymmetrical. My, my center line of my neck out to here, it's uh, it's one inch shorter than it is from here to here. Wow. Yeah, this whole, and so he, he came back like extra times to fit that, those suits. So that's the end of the sidebar. When I, the day I picked the suits up or the day he delivered them, I took them home and I thought, wow, that's great. I have a tux of my own now, you know, custom made. And, um, we were having Jim over for dinner that night and he brought Patsy Delord, his secretary with him. And I answered the door and here was Patsy in an evening gown and Jim wearing a tux. Now this was, you know, a little house in St. Albans. It was, it was a small place. It wasn't a fancy place, but it was really, you know, lots of atmosphere, a nice little spot. And I, I said, Jim, what, what you're wearing a tux. And he said, I, th I thought this was black tie. <laughs> And I said, no, well, no, but hang on a second. Come on in. And I went up and put on my tux, and Annie put on a nice dress, and we had a great evening. And Jim would never admit that he knew my tux had been delivered. 
<laughs> you know, I said, Jim, I, you, you, why would you wear a tux? He said, oh, I just thought it was black tie. <laughs> he would never admit it, which I love. I love when you stick to your story. Right, right, right. Here's, here's, here's another story about Jim. So I was, um, it was the summer of 83, and we were shooting The Muppets Take Manhattan on a stage called The Empire Stage, which was underneath the Long Island Expressway. If you go out through the tunnel um, toward Long Island, the road, the, the highway raises up for a while and goes high, and then it goes down again, and you, you end up in the other end of Long Island. But when it's high, it's right over this building that was Empire Stages. And that's where we shot all the interior stuff, all the set work, studio stuff for the movie. So one day um, at lunchtime, Jim gathered everybody together and he said, I have, a, I, have to just, I have a presentation tonight. And he said, Dave, um, congratulations on 10 years with the company. Um, and he gave me this present, I unwrapped it, and it was a big, a big clock that looked like a pocket watch. It had a brass rim on it, it had a chain, a big, a big stem on it, and a big uh, ring with the chain hanging down. Right. And on it was uh, a little message in, in uh, fine script that said, to Dave Goals, for devotion unequaled, except for a couple, couple of other people. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that was the essence of it. With a little asterisk, except for a couple other No, people. no, just all part of the one sentence, like, you don't know it's coming. <laughs> and it was it was so great. And I still, I have it out in my office. If we'd done this in my office, uh, I would have shown it to you. Uh-huh. Cool. And scene. Good. Thanks for listening. We're a podcast and a vodcast. You can listen or watch the episode. Just go to the BarrettaBrothers.com. That's B-A-R-R-E-T-T-A Brothers.com. Please subscribe, rate us. And we'd love to hear your comments. Thank you.